Hey everyone, welcome back for episode 4 of Gospel Nate and our walk through James. I'm entitling this one, Knowing What Matters. And in all honesty, if you have been following along with the previous episodes, you'll find a pattern here where that's really what we're doing. We're trying to figure out what matters and what doesn't. Uh, the things that we need to focus on in life and the things that we need to ignore. But it all comes back to our relationship in Jesus. Having said that, let's go ahead and get started, and let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we have together. Lord, once again, it is because of your mercy and because of your grace that we are all here right now, that we're able to listen to this message. And Lord, we know that you have something for us here. We know that you have given your word so that we would have a way of having a better relationship with you, a way to know you better. So, Lord, as we prepare to go through this, I just ask for your presence. I ask for your wisdom, and I ask for your guidance, that you would give me the words that I need to speak. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's dig in. We're going to be starting in James chapter 1, verse 9, and we're going to pretty much jump through verses 9 through 11, and again, we'll be reading through the New King James Version. Let the lowly brother... Glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field he will pass away, for no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, it falls and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man will also fade away in his pursuits. This whole passage is exactly what it says. Let the lowly brother glory or rejoice in the exaltations that he gets. But let the rich glory in the fact that they are made low. Now, this is not a message against riches. Okay, This isn't saying that we should redistribute wealth and that God is against people amassing money. What it's pointing out in verses 10 and 11 is that the things that the rich pursue will gain them nothing in the end. It might look wonderful and glorious. It might be promoted as the thing to obtain. But in the end, it's all perishing. Just like the grass that flowers, the rich have all kinds of possessions, and no sooner than when they've attained everything their hearts could imagine that the sun rises and burns it all away. So this is also not a message that is saying owning things is bad either, but it is a message to focus on what is important. As my wife always tells me, people are more important than things, and she is right. Things have value on an individual basis in our lives. People have value for eternity to God, and they should have value for eternity to us. If we are chasing the Broncos, the Patriots, the Raiders, the Atlanta Braves, and all the merch that goes with them, if we are chasing down the latest car, the latest boat, the latest computer, the latest phone, the newest fashion, and all at the expense of the relationships we could have had, then we are not pursuing the right things. When success becomes more important than the hearts and eternities of our fellow man, we have lost sight of what is important. We can't take any of the stuff that we have into eternity. And once you are there, you will be better off than anyone down here with their riches. Now, don't get me wrong. I like my creature comforts. It's nice to have a decent phone and a good computer. It's nice to have the freedom to go out and eat whenever I desire. But I have given those things up in the past. I've lost track of how much tech I've given up to people. I have lost track of how many times I have not gone out to eat so that we could buy a gift for someone to bless their lives. The creature comforts are nice, but don't lose sight of what's important. Building that relationship with Jesus, 
desiring purity and righteousness, fellowship with the body, ministering to the lost. And these are the things that will last into eternity. Even this podcast will fade away one day. My hope is that it reaches as many people as it can before that, and that it impacts those people for the kingdom of God. Let's move on to the next set of verses. James 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Right from the get-go, we are back to the beginning of the chapter. Earlier, we talked about counting it all joy when you fall into various trials and temptations. That word endures is our Greek word hupomene, or hupomene. It is the verb form of hupomene. The first one is a noun. It was something you stayed under because it happened to you, and there wasn't a whole lot you could do other than just go through it and have a right response. Kind of like the double charge I got on the card. I didn't really have much of a choice there. Hupomeno is a verb, so we are doing it. We aren't checking out or running away, staying under the pressure. The next word is temptation, or the Greek word parasimos. That's the one that means putting to proof, attesting to see the value of a thing. When that person has been approved, or when they come out on top of the issue, they will receive a crown of life. This crown is like the ones they gave out in the Olympic events. It showed everyone that you were clearly the winner. The verse goes on to say that this crown was promised by God to those who love him. The word love is agapeo. This is the same thing as the word you already know, agape. But it is the verb form. It means to be actively loving God. Not just sitting around saying, oh yeah, I love God, while you are not keeping his commandments. Indeed, passing through the trial or, or temptation and coming out on top means that you are actively loving God because you are keeping his commandments. Otherwise, you would have failed the putting to proof part. So what is a crown? What use is it? It is a mark of honor, victory, and glory. This is interesting to me, especially the glory part. See, if you go back in time to the Olympics, uh, which James, Peter, and Paul would have been familiar with, the victor got a crown of victory. They had overcome the rest of the competitors and stood above all the rest. The crown was their mark of glory. At this point in time, the kings wore diadems. The diadems originally were made of soft fabric, but eventually became made of flexible gold bands. By the time of Caesar, they had been fashioned to look like the leaf circlets from the Olympics, but made of pure gold. It was also around this time, or maybe a little later, that the concept of a crown and a diadem began to merge together. Diadem was a sign of authority and leadership. Crowns were a sign of victory and glory. Now, we think of them as being one and the same. We are supposed to show forth the glory of God. That glory doesn't shine very well when we are engaging in sin. It really doesn't shine well when we are worshiping our flesh. But it shines through just fine when we are obeying Jesus and submitting to the process of sanctification. And when we come out on the other side of the temptations or trials, we gain a crown of life. It is a crown of glory from Jesus, and that glory shines back on him. Sounds like the mystery of the ages to me. So is it possible that sanctification can bring not just spiritual life, but also more physical life to our bodies? Maybe one day we will discuss this if the Lord lets me go there. If you want to know more sooner, I recommend you talk to Jesus about it, see what he says. Also realize that 
I'm setting you up, and you have been warned. Moving on to the next verse, James 1, verse 13. And once again, we are still reading from the New King James Version. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. This is laid out in the English pretty much exactly as it is in the Greek. The word tempted is the Greek word parazo. It means to try whether a thing can be done, to test objectively, or to try to lure into sin. And God cannot be tempted with evil. That is anything that is worthless or damaging. Kind of like you cannot tempt a mechanical engineer to run an engine without oil. Heck, you couldn't even get me to run an engine without oil. That does not end well and has no value. And God will never tempt you to sin. There is no value in sin. So if you are a human being, and a human being of the opposite sex shows up in your life, and you find them very attractive, to the point that you have a hard time controlling your feelings and thoughts, rest assured that God did not bring that person into your life to tempt you into sin, or to see if you could resist sin. He loves that person just as much as he loves you, so he would not place them or you in harm's way just to see if you can resist harming them or yourself. This is a case of life just happening, and you need to respond correctly. Verse 14 through 15 lays it out pretty clearly. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when full grown, brings forth death. I love the Greek in this section. I really do. Each one should read more like every single person without exception. The next part of that statement we're looking at is the phrase drawn away. The Greek word for drawn away is excelco. It is a verb and means to essentially be dragged away in a figurative sense. In a more literal sense, it means to be drawn out, possibly drawn out from a safe place. And when you stop and think about it, when we're supposed to be in Jesus, and you have to be outside of Jesus to engage in sin, then this works, and this works very well, or maybe not very well, but it works, but very badly. Have you ever done something that you knew better than to do, but you did it anyways? Every single fiber of your being was screaming, don't do it, but you still did it anyway? That's the idea of being dragged out. The word lust is the Greek word epithumia. Epi always means over or superimposed on. Thumia means passion of longing or desire. It is easier to read it as overpassion. It is something that your heart or emotions are set on, whether it is good or bad. Enticed is the Greek word deliazo. It means entrapped or deluded. You took the bait. So every single person is tempted or dragged out in a way by their own overpassion and entrapped by it or deluded into thinking there was something good there. In verse 15, Then, when desire has conceived... It gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Desire is our Greek word epithumia, or overpassion. Conceived is an interesting word. The Greek is sulambano. It can mean to either seize or take prisoner, or it can mean to literally conceived. It comes from the Greek words soon, meaning with or companionship, and from the word lambano, meaning to take or lay hold of a person or a thing to use it. A possible good way of reading this might be, when overpassion has taken hold of you for its use, it gives birth to sin. 
Full-grown, that phrase is apatileo. It means to complete entirely or bring to an end. The last part of the verse means to birth from the womb. So a good way of reading this is as follows. When overpassion has taken hold of you for its use, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when brought to an absolute completion, births death. A shorter way of saying this is, you've been deluded and played. You have been used for the purpose of something that doesn't care about you. How many times have we engaged in something that we thought had some kind of value, only to find out later on that it only brought us pain, or that we wasted precious time on it that should have been better spent elsewhere? And this goes for all kinds of things in life. When we have lied to someone to protect ourselves, when we've had sex with someone because reasons, words, and stuff, when we try to justify our actions after the act even though there was no justification. The list goes on from the Ten Commandments to judgments in the heart to lies that we have chosen to believe. There is good news, though. I mean, that is the name of this podcast, after all. Good news or gospel. You can come back from any of this stuff. It's going to take relationship. Always run back to Jesus and ask for his forgiveness. And don't be rude. Don't ask him to forgive you, and then walk away before hearing the answer. Listen to him. Ask until you hear him say it. We all know, in our intellect, that the answer is yes. But until you hear the answer in your heart, you will walk around feeling condemned. Which brings us back to Romans 8, verses 1-2. through 2. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made us free from the law of sin and death. This is important to get solid in your head. The condemnation does not come from Jesus. Again, for the slow in the room, and those on drugs, the condemnation does not come from Jesus. The condemnation comes from you and the sin. Funny how that works, isn't it? First the sin deludes you into thinking that it has value. Then it entraps you. Then it uses you to give birth to death. Then you condemn yourself and walk around feeling guilty and thinking that Jesus says you are bad. This is a bad setup if I have ever found one. It is all keeping us from ever approaching the person we really should be going to. So the question is, Jesus, do you forgive me? Wait to hear the answer. Sometimes it is a firm sense in your heart, Sometimes it just feels like he's smiling at you. Other times, you may hear his still small voice. I know what the next question is going to be, but Mr. Nate, how can I be sure that I am not just putting words in my own head? Maybe I just think I'm making things up and God isn't really speaking to me. Let's apply some basic logic here. Romans 8.1 says, no condemnation in Jesus. Romans 8.1 says, condemnation in the flesh. If you are making this up in your head, do you think that your flesh is going to tell you that you are forgiven? The one part of you that wants everything bad and wants you to stay in cycles of shame and sin, and you think that something good is going to come out of it? You think that the source of your condemnation is going to tell you that you are not condemned? Now, please, and this is important, do not just assume that if you feel bad about doing something that you can just walk away because... Only the flesh makes me feel bad. There are two kinds of shame and sorrow. Godly shame and sorrow, and worldly shame and sorrow. The godly kind causes you to see that there is a breach in your relationship with Jesus. So you turn around and run back to him. You ask for forgiveness. You wait to hear the answer. You do what Jesus tells you to do to make things right with people you need to. Earthly shame and sorrow just sits around bemoaning the fact that you did something wrong. 
you walk around in continual condemnation, you do religious functions like going to church more, praying more, journaling more, getting an accountability partner, or ten, fast more, but nowhere in there did I say the phrase, restore the relationship with Jesus and walk in righteousness and forgiveness. Folks, this is key to everything in your growing. If you want to walk in the righteousness that God has for you and you want to grow in your relationship, you need to actually relate. If all you are going to do is ask forgiveness and run off without hearing the answer, how will you know if you're forgiven? I know someone is going to say, well, the Bible says he is faithful and just to forgive our sins. And you're right. However, if you do not hear it from him, then it is only head knowledge. If it isn't experiential knowledge, then you are going to walk around feeling condemned. I could hammer this relationship aspect for days and still not say enough. But all good things must come to an end. And speaking of good things... Next week, we will be discussing the good and perfect gifts from the Father. So, remember what we've discussed here. It all comes back to relationship. Your flesh is where you get the condemnation from. You have to be walking in your flesh in order to give in to sin. Sin will always try to fake you out and delude you into thinking that it has some kind of value. If you fall prey to it, then remember, you can always turn around. You can always walk away from it, and you can always come back to Jesus. There's never an exception to that, because Jesus loves you more than even you love you. So having said that, if you've got issues that you need to work on, go talk to the Father. Talk to Jesus. Ask for the forgiveness. Wait and listen for the answer. And if you don't hear the answer right away, don't just assume that no one's forgiving you. You're probably being too noisy in your head. Go back and ask again. Keep asking until you hear it. Always pursue the relationship. Let's pray. Father, once again, we thank you for the time that we have with you. We thank you that you have given us a relationship with you. We thank you that you have never turned away from us. And Lord, for the words in this message, we just ask that you would bless the hearers, that those who have heard things that have caused a stirring in their spirit would act on them. Lord, that there would not be any hemming or hawing, but that people would become excited to pursue the relationship with you. And Father, we give you the praise for sending your son, and establishing that relationship in the first place. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.